that might be a little bit of a misnomer to put a title on a new sermon series called Always Overcoming, because it might sound like we're sort of a cheerleader, rah-rah, you too can be a conqueror, we are more than conquerors, and it, it's not meant to be that. It's meant to point solely to the one person, as I just mentioned in our prayer, who can overcome and has overcome. And as we learn to allow Him to invade our lives, He overcomes through us. So that's what we're going to look at in this next few weeks leading up to Easter, is becoming overcomers, always overcoming. Every day we can become overcomers, and we're going to look at different facets of how to do that in this next several weeks. Today we're going to look specifically at Paul's passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It's going to be a very short passage, but it's one that we're really going to camp out on and look as our main focus today. Bottom line is, every day, we as believers want to be able to be overcomers, to overcome all the things that the world throws at us. And we can do that as we allow Christ's will to overcome our will. We learned, if you were, some of you were here this last weekend and heard about these five prophets that introduced themselves to you and said some very powerful things, Israel didn't do this. They didn't allow God's holiness to envelop them and invade their lives. They continued to marginalize themselves away from God, which is why the prophets had to say so many distressing things and why God had to bring upon different kinds of things that we would think is very harsh. But it was because of His love, wanting to make sure that He would fulfill all the promises He fulfilled, including that one through Abraham, that He would bless all nations through the seed of Abraham. Well, He had to keep them alive to make that promise happen. And sometimes they needed persecution. They needed other countries to come in at the hand of God because they recognized it was of His doing that He allowed these other countries to come in and just swoop in and destroy Jerusalem a couple of different times as we heard even this morning. So as we think about what happens looking at the Old Testament when people don't allow God to overcome all these things in our lives, it really behooves us to pay attention to this. We don't want to be modern-day Israel and marginalize ourselves away from that because we don't want to have to put ourselves in a position of needing punishment so that we'll return to Him. I think that prophetic word got through very strongly. I've been editing some of the audio from those presentations, and I'm here to tell you, wow, Old Testament prophets are there for a reason. God puts everything in the Scriptures for a reason, and it's speaking to me, and it's speaking prophetically and strongly, and it lets us know our God is an awesome God. So I don't want us to be a messing around kind of people who give lip service to following Christ. I want Him to overcome in our lives, really overcome. Think about a typical day, bringing this back to real life as we get ready to launch into what it looks like. Because today we're going to look at allowing Christ to overcome our pride, our self-importance, and our self-reliance. Think about how even just on a Monday, one hour can bring you into these situations where all of a sudden you start to have these tugs of war going on, these arguments with your own voices in your head. It's your own voice, but you're arguing with yourself about the thoughts that pop into your mind. Number one, trying to get out the door, you need to get somewhere on time, and somebody in your family, I know this has probably never happened to you, but I read about it once, that somebody, somebody in your family is just not getting out the door when you would like to get out the door, and it's driving you berserk. 
And so you start to have these things going on in your head. And you're thinking, they always do this to me. They are out to get me. They are trying to drive me crazy. Why is this always happening to me? And, and then you get out onto the road. You finally get into the car. You're five minutes late. But you need to have the traffic cooperate with you. Because you're already running late. And so you, this is the one time when you really hope that all the drivers are actually going about five over. So that you can feel good about yourself going five over and saying, well, everybody else is doing it. And so you get on the freeway and you get behind that one old grandma. <laughs> and it's not the grandma from Pasadena who's doing 80. This grandma's doing 65 instead of 70. And you're thinking, why do I always get behind these drivers? It's almost like the universe is out to get me. And then the first person you encounter after you've gotten your kid to where they need to be and you finally step foot into what your next appointment is, if it's at work or whatever, the first person that you encounter, something that comes out of their mouth is not real edifying. And you're thinking, oh, I ought to. Why is this always happening to me? How come I'm being put into this situation? It's not my fault that that person in my family made me late. And you see how the domino effect just keeps building until pretty soon you feel like the whole world is out to get me. As you begin your first important task, you start to boot up your, your computer and you start to be able to send a couple of important emails and things go freeze on your computer. And you think, even the electronics are out to get me now. Everything is turned against me. My life is just in shambles. <laughs> so why are you experiencing these tugs of war with the thoughts that come into your mind this way? I'll tell you why. It's because the invisible war is going on inside your head. There's a book by Donald Gray Barnhouse, and he was a pastor at the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, he even has a radio program. They're still playing some of his messages today. And Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote this book, among many others. He was a very prolific writer. And he was talking about the invisible war. He was a scholarly, intellectual man that had the ability to put the cookies on the bottom shelf and explain it so that we can really comprehend it. And he says, it's an invisible war. There's an invisible spiritual battle going on inside each of our brains and we need to understand who the enemy is. And that's part of what he does in this book. And he traces it all the way back into creation and prior to creation to show how Satan is our enemy. Satan is God's enemy. He hates what God loves. And he doesn't play fair. And the battle that Satan wages is waged in our minds. That's where we're fighting this battle. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians, where we're taking us today. For though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. Paul recognizes that as well. We're not on the same playing field. We're in the spiritual dimensions here. So the, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish. Now this sounds like a good spiritual Christianese kind of word. We're going to Demolish those strongholds. And we can easily read that and say, yeah, amen. What's a stronghold? Because it's one of those words that if we don't look into it, we might not quite understand it. Well, he goes on to start explaining in the very next verse what a stronghold is. And then we're going to unpack some of that as well. We demolish 
arguments, and every pretension or claim that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. What happens if you take something captive and make it obedient? You place it under somebody else's authority. And Paul says we need to place these thoughts that are bombarding our mind, that are coming to us not from God because they're not God's thoughts. They're coming from the enemy. They're put there by Satan. We're taking those thoughts captive and we're placing them under the authority of somebody else. Who is that somebody else? Jesus Christ. Why are we doing that? Because Jesus is the one who overcame. The only way we can overcome is by recognizing who overcame sin and death. And it's by placing these thoughts under Jesus' authority that we do that. So then we need to understand what these pretentious thoughts are. Things that may go against God and things that hate God and the things that God hates. Well, notice that every time we do something that we'd call sin, we're doing something that we think God doesn't know. I read that and I had to ponder that for a minute. I said, wait, how, how do you mean by that? They took it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's something that God can't do or God doesn't know. Well, he doesn't know that I can handle this temptation. I know other people become addicted when they do this, but I won't become addicted because I'm stronger than that. God just doesn't know that. He doesn't know me well enough. And any kind of addiction comes from trying to meet a need in a way that God doesn't want us to meet that need. If we would listen to him and do things the way he wants us to do them, we don't become addicted to those things that are harmful for us. We become addicted to him and the things that are good that he gives us to make our life better and a blessing to ourselves and others. So we battle these pretentious thoughts in this heavenly battle, this spiritual battle. So what are strongholds? Let's look at a few of them. The strongholds can be either an ism or a worldview, and they can also be an attitude. Let's look just at a handful of these isms. There are numbers of them out there. Donald Barnhouse talks about many of them in his book, but I'm just going to give you five because they're kind of prevalent, and you'll hear about them a lot. They're being talked about today, and they're taught in philosophy class classes in college. Materialism. Nothing exists except matter and its movements or modifications. And if that's true, then there is no deity to prescribe how we should act, what kind of morality we should have. We have to make everything up on our own because it's just a, a matter of matter. Matter is the only thing that matters. That's materialism. Atheism. There's no such thing as a deity. I mean, that's pretty obvious. It's a little more subtle with materialism, but it's still kind of there. In fact, many, many people who really subscribe to the materialistic worldview are also atheists. Not all, but some. Atheism, there's no such thing as deity. We have to create the world we want to live in. And some people will say we're the blank slates. We're born with a blank slate. There's neither good nor bad, so it's up to us to develop what kind of morality or ethics we might want to have. And of course, the Bible, if we read that in many places, says no, no. we're born with the sinful tendencies. None of us are born a blank slate. We're born sinful, even from our mother's womb. A third stronghold that can be an ism is Darwinism. He was a good guy, smart guy, very confused. Wrote some things even at the end of his life that made him even more confused and became tormented. And if you read some of his letters, you'll understand that he died a tormented man. Because I think he was afraid that people would misunderstand what he was going for. And even he was distraught by what he wrote. And in a sense, he killed God because of Darwinism and this huge evolutionary theory which many people teach as fact now, which is still a theory, but it's that all species got here through natural selection and evolution. Secularism, 
Religion should be kept separate from social and civic affairs. Of course, our Constitution never said that. Hedonism, you find your happiness by seeking pleasure and avoiding suffering. Well, how's that working for most folks? If you're trying to seek pleasure or real happiness, the harder you seek after it, I preached this last year sometime, the harder you seek after that, it's like a mirage out there on the road in New Mexico in the summer. And you can see it 10 miles down the road, and you, I'm going to get to that thing right down there. But the harder you drive toward it, the farther away it seems, and you never arrive at it. You can't find happiness by seeking it. It's got to come as a byproduct of being content in Christ. And then we well up and overflow with happiness because it's coming from the right source that way. So hedonism doesn't work either. So those are five examples. There are others, but that's one evidence of the types of strongholds that Paul's talking about. These arguments, these uh, philosophies that were made by men that would push God away and are against him. So those are strongholds. Also, it can be an attitude. It can be a personal attitude, like people-pleasing. I've struggled with this one. I've mentioned this. I'm a people pleaser. I grew up in a family where we wanted everybody to be happy. And that can get us in so much trouble. Because the one way you can ensure that you're going to make people unhappy is by trying to make everybody happy. And so there are times when I need to be able to say, I disagree with that. Politely and lovingly, but I disagree with that. And I might make people unhappy by saying what I think is absolute truth. Some people are unhappy by the fact that I even say there is such a thing as absolute truth. And yet there is, and we can find it in God's Word because it's based on God's character and His revealed Word to us is perfect. Worry is another one. That can be something. People can get so wrapped up in themselves in worry and anxiety, that can become a stronghold. So these attitudes that can start to make us feel like, man, I finally found the one thing that I know God can't handle, and I'm so concerned about that. What does that reveal about what you believe about God? You've kind of shrunk him down if you're worrying about that thing rather than saying, this is a God-sized problem. I really need to go to him in prayer and trust how he's going to get me past this point because I can't see how to do it myself right now. Resentment is another good one. I'm just giving a couple of real practical things like that. Resentment, uh, failure to forgive small offenses. And I think that can be death by a thousand paper cuts if we let all the small offenses build up until we're not forgiving those things because then we're just looking for things. We get this chip on our shoulder and we can't wait for somebody to offend us because we're ready then. And so those can all be strongholds as well. So let's focus now on Paul's phrase from 2 Corinthians. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take captive every thought. And the, the big question all the way through this kind of study is how? How do we do that? We're going to look at that. Because we have a sin nature, our minds don't always mind. The first thing we need to know in order to take something captive is to know something about our mind. I don't know about you. Do you always agree with yourself when you're having arguments with yourself? <laughs> there are times like the morning when things just seem to fall apart and everything is going wrong and it seems like the world has turned against you. Sometimes I don't even like the thoughts that I think. There have been times when I've had <clears throat> discussions with somebody that I care about. And after I've had that discussion, I come away later thinking, why did I say it that way? I was so harsh and cruel, and I love that person. Why did I speak that way? I don't even like what, I, what went through my mind, much less what came out of my mouth. So if I don't like that, I want to be able to put that somewhere. I need to put it under somebody's submission. And if it can't be mine, I need to put it under Christ's submission. 
Well, because we have a sin nature, our minds don't always mind. Paul says it in Romans. I want to do what's right, but I don't. Instead, I do what I hate. That's the sin nature at work in our minds. There are three principles I'm going to give you here for taking down strongholds, and they're so practical. First, you need to operate with this axiom. I think it's a truth that you cannot trust everything you think. Just because I think it doesn't make it true. If I thought something and I think, well, this would be the best way out, it came into my mind, so it must be okay. There's a lot of things that come into my mind, some of which I even scoff at myself. <laughs> things will pop into my mind and I'll think, where did that come from? That was an ugly thought. All of us, if we're really honest deep down, we'll recognize that this axiom is true. You can't trust everything you think. That's one thing we need to start operating from right off the top. Just because you think something doesn't mean it's true. Our hearts and minds are tainted with this illness called sin, which means that we're always battling the sin nature that Paul also talks about, that same thing that makes us do the very thing we hate, even though we want to do the good thing. The human heart, this is coming from that prophet that we met last Sunday at this same time. Powerful presentation, by the way. And if you haven't gotten a chance to hear that, Mark Elwell was Jeremiah, and it's going to be up on our podcasts and eventually on our YouTube channel as well. I really encourage you to listen to, well, both Isaiah. Well, you just need to listen to all five of those prophets. Because <laughs> these prophets had some things that were so vital for us to hear. And I don't know if you could feel it, those of you who are in here, but even before the service started, I sensed that something was happening in the spiritual realm. And then when the music was so powerful, I thought, oh, wow, the Holy Spirit is just prepping us for something. And then when Mark came and embodied that angst that Jeremiah had to live with and was weeping like the weeping prophet, something was coming deep down from his soul. God was up to something, folks. Because God's Word is true. And it's powerful. And it will affect us. And it will affect every part of us. And I was affected last week in a very powerful way. So thank you, all the elders who participated in that. And the human heart, as Jeremiah says, it's the most deceitful of all things. That's why we can't trust everything that just pops into our minds. It is desperately wicked. And he knew that. He knew that firsthand. Every time we sin, we think we know something God doesn't know. And I'd like for you to just let that sink in for a minute. Because if you think about somebody that sins, let's just pick a heinous sin. Somebody goes out and they're really angry at somebody, and instead of just talking it out and expressing how they feel, they decide, well, I'm just going to murder this person because I can't stand having that person on the face of the earth. Bang! And they shoot the guy dead. Well, that's a sin, and they probably knew in, innately, because God has put these things in our life, that we have a sense of right and wrong. It says so in Romans chapter 1. But we think that maybe we can get away with it. Or that we were justified somehow in doing that. And that God won't judge us that way because I had a right to do that. Because they made me late for work again. Or whatever. So we think that God doesn't know something. Folks, we need to get right back to good old scriptural truth that God knows everything. He even knows those thoughts that are popping into our brains. Which is why he's the one we need to get engaged in this battle of our minds because we need to place these thoughts that Satan places into our minds under God's authority. Because God already knows it. He knows everything. Where did this thought originate? That's a good question. It's a 
a good question to ask ourselves. Why am I thinking that thought? Where did this come from? What's likely to happen? Here's another good question. What's likely to happen if I say what I feel like saying right now? Let's just pause. Just hit the pause button for about three seconds and ask this question to myself and think, if I say what's going through my mind at this very instant, when what I know is going through my mind is going to be just scathing and leave them writhing on the floor in agony and they deserve it. <laughs> if I say that right now, what's likely going to happen as a result of that? That's a good question to ask. Number two, you need to guard your mind from garbage. You need to guard your mind from garbage if we're going to learn how to place these thoughts under the submission of Christ because where a lot of these thoughts originating is because we're feeding our minds full of stuff all through the week. A wise person, says the proverb writer, a wise person is hungry for knowledge while the fool feeds on trash. So why would I want to feed on trash? Paul says as well, talking about, oh, and this is a great, if you want to really read some of the rest of this passage too, talking about some of the freedoms we have in Christ and about Israel and why they got themselves in such trouble like the prophets talked about in our winter Bible study and what can happen if we use our freedoms incorrectly. He says, yeah, I'm free in Christ. I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Some translations say, not everything is edifying. Not everything is profitable. So yeah, you can do a thing. You've got free will. You know you can get forgiven by Christ if you do that. You know, if you walk over to your next door neighbor and kick his cat because the cat went to the bathroom on your... <laughs> you could do that if you want to. Sure you can. You've got freedom. Christ will probably forgive you. The neighbor might not. You probably escalate into a neighbor war with that, but you're allowed to. But not everything's beneficial. You need to push the pause button long enough for the Holy Spirit to put up that red flag and go... Don't go there. We need to practice the art of pausing long enough to let the Holy Spirit speak to us. I turned off hate last week. It was after that spiritual high mountaintop experience last week's worship time, uh, both the growth encounter and in our worship service. All morning, it was just a powerful, spiritually edifying morning. And then that evening, partially I was depleted, partially I was a little bit hungry, and partially, there was some stuff on TV that I just wasn't agreeing with. And I felt myself just kind of welling up with anger. And I was getting anxious and angry and fidgety. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And it's because I realized the thing that was going on on the television, this guy was just spewing hate. And I thought, why am I putting this garbage in my head? I'm feeding garbage to my mind. And it's no wonder that I feel like garbage because I'm feeding on garbage. So I turned it off. And I left. I left the room and I went and did something that was more edifying at the time. Sometimes the reason we feel like garbage is because we're feeding on garbage. Wonderfully, the Bible gives us some good things we can do. And one of those things that Paul talks about, I believe is in Philippians, is continual conversational prayer. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. We've talked about this numerous times in our church. Then, if you'll do that, then you'll experience God's peace rather than the turmoil that rises up when we're feeding on garbage. Last Saturday, 7.29 a.m., I can pinpoint it exactly. I started having the war within, as Donald Barnhouse talked about, because I arrived 
getting ready to start set up so that we could have our winter Bible study. And notice that there was no vehicle behind the school for somebody to let us into the building. Even though I had received an email from somebody earlier saying, you're all set, we were not all set. And I was a little bit upset. <laughs> and so I started praying about it. And the first thing that came to mind was, I think I'll try this person. I really hope they answer their phone. I called. Amazingly, they did answer. And they were awake, even though it was 729. I said, I, I really hate calling people this early. Well, what's up? This is happening. Oh, well, that's interesting. Because there's nothing on the calendar on my end. Apparently, nobody responded to that email from somebody else. I thought, well, I'm not sure which person in there didn't respond, but that's beside the point. We need to get into the building. And I was trying to be gracious. I was praying silently. God, help me to be gracious. Help me to be the kind of person I would want somebody to be to me if I were on the other end of the phone. And she goes, fortunately, there's a guy down at the high school. I'll have him run right up the road and open it up for you. You know, great. That was good. But you know how sometimes when we're in the middle of a conflict situation, our emotions don't just immediately go down again. It's like uh, if you've cooked a, a pot of water and you, it takes a long time to get it to boil, especially if you watch it. <laughs> and then you want it to cool down, so you just turn off the burner underneath that. Well, two minutes later, are you going to just put your finger in there again? No, why? Because it takes a long time for that to calm down. Our emotions are like that. I was still, my heart was still racing. I, I know I was probably up to about 180 beats per minute. I was still upset in my emotions even though I knew this problem was going to be solved. And so I sat in my vehicle and prayed silently and said, Lord, please calm me down. Speak to my spirit. I know that everything's okay. And I know that you're still on your throne. And if we start a little bit late, our folks are flexible. They'll roll with it. They always do. So there's nothing else more than I can do than I've already done. There's nothing I can do besides this situation now. You fixed the problem. It's going to be okay. Calm me down. And that, you know, it only took that long for me to pray until I could already start to feel that I was going from 180 to 160. And I know I'm okay, but the emotions just get the best of us when we do that. That's why we need to place, put the pause button on there, place that thought under the submission of Jesus Christ who conquered, and then we can become conquerors as well. So, recap. You can't trust everything you think. You need to guard your mind from garbage. And here's the third one. You need to share your struggle with other believers. So much positive that grows out of doing life with other believers. Because for one thing, we hold ourselves accountable. We put up guardrails for ourselves. So that if I hear you saying something that sounds like, ooh, man, I think you're off track with that thought. Let's talk about that for a little bit. We, we hold each other together on the road and keeping each other from going out into the deep weeds. And we protect each other by looking into God's Word from being surrounded by those philosophies and the pretensions that would set itself up against God that Paul talks about. This is why we need to do life together. I'm going to fast forward just to three things very quickly that have been watershed moments in my own life because of doing life together with other people in small groups. I thought at one point way back years ago, I was preaching in another church back then, God had given me a brief season of my life in which writing was taking uh, on a more, uh, a greater piece of the pie in terms of the amount of time I was able to uh, to create words on a page, and, and I was successful in three books that actually got published by a reputable publisher, and uh, I was starting to become asked to speak and do book signing engagements and some things like that. So it was kind of going to my head a little bit, 
And I watched other people like Philip Yancey, whose books I loved, and I loved Chuck Swindoll, and I loved some of these writers that were really influencing me. And I thought, man, it would be neat to be a full-time writer. I really get something just does something that feeds my soul when I'm writing and I see success in writing. So I, I thought about it. I thought maybe God's calling me to be a full-time writer and speaker outside the local church as a pastor. So I was in turmoil about it, didn't have any good, clear direction from God, and so I invited these guys that were a big part of my life to come together so we could talk about it. And we did that. And I asked some questions. They asked some questions. After about 45 minutes of really good questions, one guy made one observation. You know him. It was Ron Potter. Uh, he just He's such a wise fella. And he said one sentence. He said, you do understand, don't you, that if you feel that you're called to become a full-time writer, you're going to have to resign from your current church. Because full-time means full-time. And my reaction surprised even me. I didn't know why I did it. it. It overcame me so suddenly that I became almost hysterical. I started to cry in front of these guys. really embarrassing. It's like, stop this. What are you doing? And I had to process it. They asked me, why, why the emotion? What's there? I said, I don't know yet. So they asked a couple of other clarifying questions, and I realized that in that moment of clarity... It would feel like a death to me to walk away from the pastor. I loved shepherding people. I loved dealing with people every day, praying with them, teaching them God's word, watching them grow, seeing the baptisms, watching this character arc from people that would go from not knowing Christ to knowing Christ to becoming like Christ and then starting to introduce other people to Christ. That just charged me up. Because I'd seen it with my own eyes. It was tangible. It was real. And I was pretty good at it by then. And it would have felt like a death to step away from that. And my reaction to his question was my answer. God showed me on my drive home from that meeting, that small group of men helped you make your decision. You can't leave the pastorate. This is what God has gifted me to do. It's part of my shape. My spiritual giftedness, my heart, my abilities, my experience. It, this stuff is what I was called to do. Not everybody's called to do the same thing. But if your shape puts you into the same situation where you feel like, man, for me to leave this and do something else would feel like a death, maybe God's trying to tell you something about that. But I didn't find that out apart from a small group. I found it out by doing life together with other people. Second one, similar thing, and I've told you about this one before. I told about a person that I loved dearly, but we were estranged. The guy said, when's the last time you called that person? Simple question. I hadn't. My pride had gotten so big, I didn't see it, that I was the problem. So I went home, waited for the time zone change, because it would have been too early where she lived at the time. I called this person, relative of mine. We've been tight ever since. Because of a small group, doing life together. See, it's the, the word applied that starts to make life real. And that I'm able to start putting these thoughts under the authority of Jesus Christ when those thoughts hit me. And they asked such good, cogent questions that my life got better because I was doing life with these other people in small groups. And then the third one was, my grandfather passed away. I didn't expect that I would be preaching my grandparents' funerals because I always expected my dad would do it. But he was becoming debilitated enough in his speech and memory from Parkinson's and the medications he was taking at the time that dad couldn't preach my grandfather's funeral. So they said, son, can you do it? Well, of course I was going to do that. But we were poor, wasn't making a lot of money in that church. You guys take such good care, abundant 
care of us. Thank you for that. But we were pretty poor back then. I didn't know how we could afford it. I really didn't want to put it on a credit card because I just despise credit card credit because the interest rate is so high. So I was working hard not to do that. But I thought, if I have to, I have to, and I'll trust God. So I bought the plane ticket, put it on the credit card. The night, as I was packing, the night before I left for Arizona, doorbell rang. It was one of the fellow pastors in a small group that I'd been attending together, fellow shepherds, and another denomination. It wasn't even our denomination. <laughs> Is that even possible? Is that biblically allowed? <laughs> and he said, the rest of us pastors are hurting with you right now. And we took up, I'm sorry, we took up a collection for you. And I hope this helps. And I opened the envelope and it paid for the plane ticket. Folks, you can't separate God's word from God's people. We need each other. God does amazing things when we just take him at his word because his word is true. And he's true. And I want to come against every pretension that sets itself up against God. And I want to say, God is real. Please know him the way I know him. Because your life will never be the same. Let's pray. Father, there's so much in your word, and I feel so feeble at times trying to express it. I feel like I've just barely touched the surface. But I pray that as we sing and study and pray and talk and care for one another, I pray that you will become so abundantly present in people's lives that they cannot ignore you and that they will see your love expressed in so many ways, especially in the form of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for them, and that they will respond to you and reach out to you and understand, yes, I need that God. I need to place myself under his authority, and that's how I can become an overcomer because Christ overcame on my behalf. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus, our exalted Savior. Amen.